Hear the word of the Lord. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in Christ, who created all things. This is the word of the Lord. And go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, good morning. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Redemption Peoria. Thanks for joining us this, this morning. Um, I'm going to pray that God, through his spirit, by his word, would empower us and change the way we think about this text, that he would engage with us, illuminate our minds this morning. So if you would pray with me, um, that would be great. Father, thanks for your goodness to us. Thanks for this truth. This morning from this letter written from Paul to the church, I pray you would illuminate our hearts, illuminate our minds to the text. God, show us areas, Spirit, convict us of areas that we need to change, that we need to repent of and look more like you. Um, Thanks for being here. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for this group of people. I pray we would glorify you in our time. We love and trust you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you're new with us, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians since the month of January. And last week, we started in chapter 3. So we've been going at a very slow pace. And we looked at chapter 3 last week, and we saw that um, the book of Ephesians is laid out in two major sections. You have the first section, chapter 1, 2, and 3. And then there's a corner that gets turned in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 give all these deep theological rich truth about who God is, how he saves us, how we can know him and be reconciled to him. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 talk about what it looks like to actually live out that truth in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And 3 is kind of a hinge chapter as we talked about last week because what Paul is going to do in this chapter is he's actually going to pray for the church. He's going to pray for him, and he starts in in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3 And then as we talked about last week, there's a dash probably in your Bible in between verse 1 and verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 3. And this dash actually represents a parenthesis in the original language. And so Paul kind of goes on this side tangent. He's about to pray for these people, but before he prays, he says, wait. Let me make sure you understand this. Let me make sure you get this part of the gospel before I pray for you and then give you all this instruction. And so he has this parentheses all the way from verse 2 of chapter 3 all the way down to verse 13. You can see it in your Bible there at the very beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he picks it up again. He gives this kind of side tangent through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 14, for this reason, and he begins to pray for the church. We talked last week about these first six verses of chapter 3, and we're looking at this parentheses in these three categories. The first category is, who is this gospel for? Who is this gospel for? And we unpack this mystery that it's not only for the Jewish people, God's people, but it's also for the Gentile people. And through the church, it's being brought together. So who is this gospel for in verses 1 through 6? Verses 7 through 9, we're going to talk about today the depths of this gospel message. And then Sean will be up next week and talk about the vehicle that God uses to display the gospel 
and verses 10 through 13. Again, who is this gospel for? What are the depths of this gospel message, this good news? And what is the vehicle that God uses to display this gospel truth? That's all in these parentheses that Paul's saying, don't miss this. Don't miss this, because if you miss this, the rest of the letter is not going to make sense as I give you instruction. This is really, really important for you to understand this essence of the gospel. And so this morning, we're going to look at verses 7, 8, and 9, and I'm going to give you some commentary and some context of these verses of what I think Paul's trying to communicate. And then on the back half of our time this morning, I'm going to spend on one phrase in verse 8. That, man, I, I can't get away from. Ever since studying this text, ever since reading this text like this, I, it keeps drawing me in. This one phrase in verse 8. So that's what we'll, our time will look like this morning. So if you don't already, please have your Bible open to Ephesians chapter 3. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles out in the lobby. We'd love for you to take one of those if you don't have a copy of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel... I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Let's stop right there. Of this gospel. Of what gospel is Paul referring to? And he's going off of what we talked about last week in verses 1 through 6 that is specifically reflecting on the gospel at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. Because Ephesians chapter 2 is all about reconciliation. And the way it's laid out is verses 1 through 10 talk about vertical, individual reconciliation with God. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, but because of grace and because of the cross, now we can be made right with God. But Paul doesn't leave it there in Ephesians chapter 2. He continues with the gospel implications in verses 11 through 22. And he talks about not only does the gospel reconcile us vertically, but it also has massive horizontal implications communal implications. And he talks about these Jewish followers and these Gentiles and that through the blood of Christ, they're actually coming together to form the church. And that the way you can love God is by actually loving other people. So when he says this gospel, that is what Paul is referring to, this horizontal work of the gospel of people being brought together in unity. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. This word minister in the original language is the same word that we get for deacons. It actually means servant. So some of us, we hear the word minister and we think it's a vocation, right? I just filled out my taxes a couple months ago and I had to write minister on there because that's my vocation as a trade. But this is really a word that means servant, and it carries this weight of serving. It's not just like serving tables. It's actually someone that executes the commands of another, especially a king. And so Paul is saying, listen, my ministry of this gospel, my ministry, my service of God's grace is to preach to the Gentiles. And I love the way he says it in verse 7 of this gospel. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace grace. A lot of times when we think of serving, whether it's this body here, this family here, or serving in general, loving God and serving people, we often think it's our gift to the community, right? There's plenty of ways to serve even here at Redemption Peoria, right? We're a mobile church, and so this stuff 
goes up and comes down every week. We have setup crews and teardown crews that people help with. There are about 100 children back in this back corner every Sunday that need to be watched and ministered to and cared for and taught the gospel message. And so there's plenty of ways to serve. But a lot of the times, if you've been around a while, you may have felt guilted into serving or you felt like, no, this is my contribution. This is my part to the whole, right? And you've thought it's your gift to God. My service is my gift to God. My service is my gift to the community here. And look at what Paul does in the text. Look at your Bible. He flips that equation. It's not Paul's gift to God to serve the Gentiles, to preach to the Gentiles, It's actually God's gift to him. Because when you serve that way, when you think about it that way, it becomes a joy. right? If you spend time back there in the children's ministry, how many of you have worked in the children's ministry before? Give me a raise of hands. It's a good sprinkle for you, right? Like You may think, I'm really helping out, but you know what you start to realize after being back there a couple times? You're actually the one getting the benefit. You're actually the one growing. It actually becomes a gift to you. It's not your gift to them. It's actually your gift. The the gift comes back to you. And that's what happens in ministry. As you continue to grow and you continue to love other people, you actually get more in return. And so that's what Paul is saying here. It's not his gift to God, but it's God's gift to him, which I love. But we can't forget the back end of verse 7. Because if you step out to serve, if you say, yes, I want to spend an hour and a half of my time helping out with the kids' ministry before I go to church or after I go to church, man, I would love to do that. And you begin to do it in your own efforts. Look at the text again. It's not going to work. And Paul recognizes this. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Notice the source of that power. It's God giving Paul the power by the Holy Spirit. It's not Paul pulling up his own bootstraps, working harder, because if you don't recognize where the power is coming from when you serve, and you just start serving out of your own will, it's a recipe for burnout. It's a recipe for frustration. It's a recipe for pharisaical living. And so you have to understand where that power comes from and utilize that power. I was moving tables and pushing chairs this morning, as I do every Sunday morning, which I love. And as I was pushing this table down the hallway, I just started thinking like, I'm just doing this in my own power, which you can push a table in your own power. It's possible, right? But instead, I started praying. I started, Lord, I don't want to be bitter about pushing this table. I want to do it in your power. I want you to work in and through me. Help me realize that serving this way is actually loving you. And when you start to do that in service, you don't get tired, you don't get angry, you don't get bitter. You actually serve with joy. And that's what Paul is saying here. He recognizes that this gift, it's a gift of God, from God to serve, but also that it's only because he is working through God's power. Right? And I love it. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 29 talks about this. Paul talks about, I labor with all his energy, which so powerfully works within me. And so we have the opportunity to partner with God in service as he moves. He's the engine working in and through us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7 of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given 
me by the working of his power. Verse 8, to me, though on the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul says at the beginning of verse 8, he is the very least of all the saints. And we read this and I'm like, come on. Come on, Paul. You think you're the very least of all the saints? As I look at it, I'm like, that just seems like false modesty, kind of like this humble brat. Like, come on, Paul. Like, the least of all the saints? If you Google most influential leaders, just leaders, not even Christian leaders, Paul is always like somewhere in the 20s or in the 6th or 7th spot of the most influential leaders of all time on human history. And he's going like, uh, I'm the least. I'm kind of going doesn't seem to make sense in my modern brain. But when you think about who this letter was written to, you remember that Paul was actually in prison when he wrote this letter. Think of Paul's story in Acts, if you know it. Paul was almost not even a disciple. It was like last minute getting voted in. Because before Jesus shows up to Paul in Acts, he's actually persecuting people that are following Jesus. He's actually looking to capture them. He's looking to kill people that are following Jesus. And so he has a very realistic understanding that it's because of grace that he's able to even have a ministry. And some of us feel like we can't have ministry. We can't serve. Do you know what I did in my old life? Like, I I can't serve these people. I think that's some of the mentality that Paul is taking here is he says he's the least of all the saints. He also has a very deep insecurity of his own power and his own position in this statement, I think. Which I think is actually very healthy. Paul recognizes it's not from his own efforts, it's not from his own knowledge, but it's from God that he has an opportunity to minister to these people. Galatians chapter, or I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 3 He says, he's the very least of all the saints in verse 8, that this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what was the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages of God who created all things. Verse 8 and 9 are interesting to me how specific Paul gets and who he is talking to. And my wife and I have three kids, and I have general prayers for all three of these kids. I'm praying that they would know Jesus, that they would walk intimately with him, that they would love other people, that they would add value to others wherever they go. Those are general prayers for all three of my kids. But then I have very specific prayers for each one of my children because of their personality, the way they're wired, what I feel like God has put on my heart to pray for them. And I pray for those things specifically and often. And I feel like what Paul is doing here in the text is he's praying specifically for the Gentiles. He's explaining his ministry to the Gentiles and the ministry he has to everyone else. And again, in verse 8, he says that his ministry was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Why do you think the Gentiles need to hear the unsearchable riches of Christ? Like, what is, why, why would he preach specifically that to them? And we have to be reminded again that the Gentiles are these people that aren't of 
God. They're not part of God's family in the original Old Testament. They didn't know the customs of God. They didn't know how to connect with God. And now, all of a sudden, through the power of the cross, they're brought into the family. The Gentiles don't understand the unfathomable, unexhaustible resources they had available in Christ. And again, think about trying to be a part of this diverse community this new cultural community, they needed to know that they belonged. That they actually had a voice, that they belonged at the table because for so long they were pushed away from this family. And that's why I think it's so important that Paul uses the adoption language in the beginning of Ephesians, that we've been adopted into this family. We've talked a a lot about adoption here at Redemption Peoria and foster care and our heart for the orphan. And our lead pastor, Sean, if you've been here a while, he was adopted. He grew up in and out of foster care and in and out homeless and not knowing where his next meal was going to come from. And then in high school, a family adopts him into their family. And if you've ever heard Sean tell the story about the first night he was there eating dinner with this family and they had lobster. And he was freaking out because they were eating lobster. And if you've heard him tell the story, he starts taking the rolls and putting them in his pockets real slowly that nobody knows. Because he doesn't know if this is going to last. He's thinking, this isn't going to last. I've got to take what I can now. And I feel like the Gentiles were in this place with the community of God where they felt like, I I don't know if this is going to last. I don't know if I have a voice at the table. I don't know if I bring anything in. And Paul is saying, yes, you need to understand the unsearchable riches of this God you follow. And Paul was called to preach those unsearchable riches to the Gentiles. But then he says in verse 9, he talks about how he is called for everyone else to bring to the light what is the plan and mystery hidden in the ages of God who created all things. So everybody else is the Jews, not the Gentiles, but God's original people. Why is Paul called to minister to them to help them know the plan and the mystery hidden for the ages of God? I think what Paul's trying to communicate in this moment to the um, non-Gentile people, the Jewish people, that God is sovereign. That God's in control, that God actually has this plan, that you're just now realizing that this was how God was going to work it out as this plan, this mystery has now been revealed because of the cross. But this plan was the same all along. And we get it in Ephesians chapter 1 as in verse 4, he's saying, even though he chose us before the foundation of the world, because again, think of the context of these two groups of people. You have the Gentiles and you have the Jewish people. Gentiles really don't feel like they have a place at the table. And Paul's saying, yes, yes, you have a place at the table. You have a voice. The Jewish people are probably, as you mix these two cultures together, and the Jewish people have the power, right? They've been in God's word. They know God. And now this other group is coming in. And what happens when this new group comes in and doesn't abide by their rituals? They don't eat the same way that we eat. They don't observe the Sabbath the same way we observe the Sabbath, which is what makes us holy, which is what gives us our righteousness. And Paul is saying, stop. He's reminding them, like, listen, when they come in, and you, you might be thinking if you're a Jewish person going, well, maybe God, oh, I don't know if that was really the original plan. Like, 
unless they assimilate to what we're doing, maybe they're not really part of the family of God. And Paul's saying they are. This was the plan from the very beginning. It's being unfolded to you now. Embrace the reality of these two cultures coming together to be known as the church. And I love what Klein Snodgrass says. Uh, he's a commentator on Ephesians chapter 3. Listen to what he says about this parental, um, this whole side tangent that Paul goes on, verse 2 through 13. Listen to what he says. He says, what this text underscores is that the unity is not some non-essential, some afterthought or some byproduct of the faith, but it is at the heart of Christianity. The revelation that came in Christ was a revelation about unity. If we do not proclaim unity, we have not proclaimed the gospel. If we do not live in unity, we have missed the gospel's impact. We need to be reminded of that, of that unity that Paul is giving voice to the other in the midst of this text. And again, as I've looked at this and I've read it, I keep coming back to this phrase in verse 8. And the phrase is this, that Paul says, even though he was the least of the saints, his grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. I can't wrap my mind around what that phrase means, even for me. And when you think about your relationship with Jesus, those of you that have a relationship with Jesus in this room, when you think about that relationship, would you describe it as unexhaustibly rich? If we were having a conversation, I found out we were both Christians, and I'd say, tell me about your relationship with Jesus. Are you saying, it's so deep, it's so rich, it's so inexhaustible, I can barely explain it to you how good it is. Is that how you would describe your relationship with Jesus? When I think about this idea of unsearchable riches or um, depth, massive depth, my mind is automatically drawn to the ocean as an illustration of depth. So I want us to watch, in just a second, we're going to watch a three-minute video about the ocean. It's going, to be, it's going to be like science class in here for a second. So engage this video about the depths of the ocean. Just how deep does the ocean go? If you took the highest point on land and submerged it, you would still have more than a mile between you and the deepest point in the oceans. The oceans harbor 99% of all living space on Earth and have enough water to fill a bathtub that's 685 miles long on each side. For scale, here's a human, and here's a blue whale, the largest animal on Earth. Blue whales usually hunt at depths of around 330 feet, within the well-lit zone of the ocean. Deeper down, at 700 feet, the USS Triton became the first submarine to circumnavigate the Earth in 1960. At 831 feet, we reached the deepest free dive in recorded history. Down here, the pressure is 26 times greater than at the surface, which would crush most human lungs. But whales manage it, diving to a max depth of 1,640 feet where they hunt giant squid. At 2,400 feet, we reach the danger zone for modern nuclear attack submarines. Any deeper, and the submarine's hull would implode. 2,722 feet down is where the tip of the world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa, would reach. A little farther, at 3,280 feet, 
We're deep enough that sunlight can't reach us. We've now entered the Midnight Zone. Many animals down here can't see, like these eyeless shrimp at 7,500 feet who thrive near scalding, hot, underwater volcanoes. At this depth, temperatures are just a few degrees above freezing, but the waters around hydrothermal vents can heat up to 800 degrees Fahrenheit. 9,816 feet is the deepest any mammal has been recorded swimming, the cuvier beaked whale. But not even the cuvier beaked whale could explore the RMS Titanic, which rests at a staggering depth of 12,500 feet. The pressure is now 378 times greater than at the surface. Yet you can still find sea life, like the fangtooth, hagfish, and dumbo octopus, the deepest living octopus on Earth. At 20,000 feet is the Hadal Zone, an area designated for the ocean's deepest trenches, like the Mariana Trench. If you tipped Mount Everest into the Mariana Trench, its summit would reach down to 29,029 feet. That still doesn't compare to the two deepest crewed missions in history. In 2012, director James Cameron descended to 35,756 feet for the Deep Sea Challenger mission. But Cameron didn't quite break the record, which was set by oceanographer Jacques Picard and Lieutenant Don Walsh in 1960. Picard and Walsh descended to the lowest point on Earth, Challenger Deep, at a record 35,797 feet below the surface. Since then, scientists have sent half a dozen unmanned submersibles to explore Challenger Deep, including Keiko, which collected over 350 species off the seafloor between 1995 and 2003. But scientists estimate there are potentially thousands of marine species we have yet to discover. Humans have explored an estimated 5 to 10% of Earth's oceans. We've only just begun to understand the deep, dark world that flows beneath us. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 12 is talking about God's greatness. And it says, he measures the water in the hollow of his hands. That water that we've only explored 5 to 10% of all of the ocean, it's deep and unsearchable. Why is it that our view and our experience with Jesus seems so limited, shallow a lot of the times? If we're honest with ourselves, it seems, it seems shallow, like... God met me at a certain time. I've trusted him for my life. And now I, maybe you were on fire for a little bit, but then all of a sudden it starts to plateau and it just doesn't seem rich. It seems shallow. And about 15 years ago, there was somebody that uh, exposed me to the chart I'm about to show you guys that was massively helpful for me in this idea of the depths and richness of Jesus and the cross of my own personal life. So you can throw that up, Scott. Um, because what happens is if you start in time and then at some point, as Ephesians 2 says, God wakes you up. He causes you to life. You don't even fully understand why. Somebody said something, something resonates with you, your heart, the scales fall off, and all of a sudden you trust Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 24, talks. Jesus is talking and says, He who has heard the things and believes in the Father that I sent him, he has crossed from death. To life, And so there's conversion in your heart and in your soul, and you become a Christian. 
So once that happens, two things begin to converge. Your growing awareness of God's holiness. You start to realize how deep the ocean actually is. This God that I serve that just woke me up to who he is, he is unbelievable. The more I read about him and study about him and I'm around God's people, he's way bigger than I ever understood. And so that increases to grow over time. At the same time, your growing awareness of your own sinfulness is happening. Hopefully you're not becoming more sinful, but you are being exposed to the reality of your sin, that it goes really, really deep. When I first became a Christian, I thought certain things I said or did, that's not really a big deal, that's no problem. And then a couple years later, I'm going, wow, that's a problem. Like God's convicting me of the things I'm doing and saying, and this continues to happen in my journey with Christ that I'm growing in my attitude and my actions, and he's causing conviction in my heart. I'm growing in my awareness of my sinfulness. And when this happens, these two things converge. It gets deeper and wider and bigger, and the cross, you can hit the next one, the cross actually gets bigger. You can go one more, Scott. That should be the depth in your relationship with Jesus, it should get deeper and richer as you grow. That when you come in and you sing these songs, whether you like the music or not, what we're talking about is the relationship with Jesus that's changed you, that's changed me. And I'm crying in the back because of what it's done to my heart. And it's deep and it's rich and it's meaningful. Walking with Jesus is not boring unless you're not doing it right. It's a life-giving relationship that changes and molds you and shapes you. It's so good to walk with Jesus. But a lot of us, this is not our experience in the Christian life. We come to Jesus. You can hit that next one, Scott. We come to Jesus in our conversion, but the cross never gets any bigger. Kind of just plateaus. And I'm good with Jesus. You're good with But, you know, I'm not really growing not really changing. God doesn't seem very real to me or any more real than when I first met him. And typically when this happens is because we begin to perform or we begin to pretend. And what that does is it actually shrinks the cross, makes it smaller. And we talk about pretending down there on the bottom. To discern your subtle tendencies towards pretending, ask yourself this question. If you feel like you're stuck in pretending, you ask this question. What do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility? What do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility or uh, validity or acceptance or good standing? Your answer to that question will often reveal something besides Jesus in which... You find your righteousness, why you feel right with God and other people, because you do this. And when we're not firmly rooted in the gospel, we rely on these false sources of righteousness to build our reputation and to give us a sense of worth and value. L- let me explain what this looks like practically, right? That you would... Hold on to these things that give you a sense of right being with God and with others. It looks like this. It could be job righteousness. 
I'm a hard worker. God will reward me. It could be family righteousness. Because I do the right things as a parent, I'm far more godly than the parents that can't control their kids. You feel the sense of righteousness. There could be theological righteousness. I have good theology. God prefers me to those who have bad theology. I go to this Reformed church. We really get into the word there. God must prefer me to these other people over here. You could have intellectual righteousness. I'm better read, more articulate, I'm more cultural savvy than others, which obviously makes me more superior. You could have schedule righteousness. I hate this one because this is me a lot. I'm self-disciplined and I'm rigorous in my time and management, which makes me more mature than others. You could have the opposite of that, flexibility righteousness. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and disadvantaged the way everybody else should. I'm doing that. I'm taking care of it. And so you start to feel like you're right before God and for other people because you do these things. Legalistic righteousness. I don't drink or smoke or chew or date girls that do. Right? Too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. I had some friends in town some very, very close friends in town, and one of them, they have five boys. They're all fairly young, and we're talking to each other, and we're digging into each other's lives, and we find out, he says, listen, we, at our house, we don't even let them watch commercials. I was like, what do you mean you don't let them watch commercials? He's like, well, there's a sporting game on, or some show on, a commercial will come, and all five boys, commercial, commercial! They turn the, they turn the TV off, at every commercial, and then they're just guessing. I was like, you just guess when it comes back on? You just, you're pretty good at guessing? He's like, yeah. Now, I don't know what's going on in his heart. I don't know what's going on in his kids. Like, there, there is a, a good part of protecting your children from what is being said out there, definitely. But I think he's swung the pendulum a little far on this extreme. This idea of legalistic righteousness, that he feels good because his kids don't watch any commercials. There's financial righteousness. I manage my money wisely and stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. What is the thing that makes you feel right in front of God and in front of others? That's the part of pretending. What about performing? That shrinks the cross. To reveal your tendency of performance... I want you to close your eyes. I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask you this question. Some of you have had your eyes closed for a while now, which I can appreciate. But, uh, close your eyes and stay awake if you can. I want you to engage your imagination with this question. Engage your imagination. As God thinks of you right now, as God thinks of you right now, what is the look on his face? As he thinks of you, what is the look on his face? Do you picture God as disappointed, as angry, as indifferent? Does his face say, get your act together? Or does it say, if you could, oh, if you could only do a little more for me? You can open your eyes. If you've imagined God as anything but overjoyed with you, overjoyed with you, then you've fallen into a performance mindset. Because the truth is, 
is this, that in Christ, God is deeply satisfied in you because you're his child, because what Jesus has done on the cross, he doesn't look at you and the things you've done or haven't done. He looks at you through Jesus. And he's overjoyed that you're his child. We have to realize that we've been adopted as a son or a daughter if you've trusted Jesus with your life, if you've made that decision to follow him. If we imagine that we're better Christians, that God would approve of us more fully, and if we start doing that, it saps our joy and our delight out of following Jesus, leaving us to wallow in a joyless, dutiful obedience. And our, co- our gospel becomes very small. It starts to look like this. It starts to look truncated. And I think that's a little bit of what was happening. Even when you read the Bible and you read these Jewish leaders, a lot of them sit in the category of performing or pretending. They haven't really experienced the truth and the beauty of the gospel. They've been relying on these other things to make them right with God and others. And Paul is reminding them of the truth in this passage. And to really experience deep transformation God promises in the gospel, we must continually repent of the sinful patterns of pretending and performing. And so as God brings these things to your mind, how he views you, how you view your own righteousness, when that starts to come to the surface, you need to repent from that. You need to, as you're going this way, thinking you're getting your righteousness from some things, you need to turn and move towards the cross. Because Jesus is the only thing that makes you righteous. Stop playing church games. We don't, like, it's only Jesus. It's only the cross. The Father is the only one with the gavel. He's the only one it makes any difference on. How he views you. That way we'll start to discover the unsearchable riches of Christ that you would grow, that the cross would become bigger and bigger as you grow as a Christian. It'd be deeper and richer in your life. Our souls must be deeply rooted in the truth of the gospel so we can anchor our righteousness and identity in Jesus and not in ourselves. For us to get this, it has to be. It has to be central to our thinking and it has to be central to the way we act. We can't live like this. We need to live with a big gospel, with a big cross because we serve a big God. And just like the church in Ephesus, we have to cling to the gospel promise that God is pleased with us, just like he's pleased with the Gentiles. He's pleased with us for one reason. It's because he's pleased with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thanks for reminding uh, reminding us of this truth that we don't have to strive for being righteous by our actions, by our outward appearance, God, but because of the cross, because of the goodness of your son coming and living a perfect life, dying on the cross and beating death, we can be made righteous as we follow you. I pray we would hear that, God. I pray we would live that. Father, I pray whatever is going on in the hearts and minds, of the folks in this room, that you would stir their hearts to follow you, that the cross would be bigger and bigger 
as they grow, as they walk with you, as they trust you for a lifetime. Father, help us as we're reminded when we come to the table at communion, that's only your righteousness. God, that's the reminder as we take the bread and the cup this morning. We love you and we trust you. Pray that you would change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.